Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me, MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. Matt, hello. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Matt, right off the bat, I want to give you some credit. It is Friday afternoon. We were originally going to record this show yesterday before Game 5 of the NLDS. You said maybe we should push it back. Maybe we should know what happened in that game. Uh, Turned out to be a really good idea. So thanks for that. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we actually have a window view today. I mean, nobody listening can know that, but I know that, and I think it's cool. Matt's holding a Bob Barker mic. Uh, we're going to play uh, Plinko a little bit later. It's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. That game last night. So this is the Dodgers Nationals game last night. Uh, they're going to be talking about that for I don't know decades. It's this postseason thus far has already had a number of classic games. It's like oh, okay, I mean, there was the the wild card game, a wild card game, and Carnacion's walk off. Yeah. Then you had the Cubs crazy comeback. Um, you had the Donaldson dash home. The Donaldson dash home, and you had the Cubs crazy comeback in the ninth inning. And the day before that was the Cubs come back and then lose. lose. I mean, there's been some already had some wild games. The last and don't night, forget the NL wild card game. You had the Cindergaard and uh, exactly. And that, that's like by far a, I've already forgotten about like that. It was amazing. <laughs> last night's game is going to be one is one for the ages. Just the, the the Kershaw coming in with the whole narrative of his whole postseason performance and him coming in to close it down after Jansen had pitched two-plus innings. My favorite stat of the game was that Jansen threw more pitches than Rich Hill, the starting pitcher. <laughs> I like that. Well, it, it, did we kill, uh, like, closers, right? I mean, even looking back to the A.L. Walker game, where Buck Showalter just got destroyed for not bringing in Zach Britton, look what's happened since then. We've got Miller all over the place. Now we've got Ken- Kenley Jansen coming into the seventh inning. I, I know it's not going to be the same, like, for an entire six-month regular season, but doesn't it seem so long ago what happened in that American League wildcard game? And you couldn't even conceive that happening now. Yeah, I think that regular season postseason distinction is, is key because in the regular season you have to manage your bullpen for the long haul. You, know, you talk to relief pitchers, they'll always tell you the thing they like least about the job are managers who get them warmed up and don't bring them in the game. You know, so you can't. The reason why you get this, you know, this like rote closer role is for that reason. It's like it's a long season. We need. Dividing up the roles just makes it so much easier. But in the postseason, all bets are off. And we've seen this in the last few years in particular. I remember Dave, Fang, Dave Cameron wrote a piece of fan graphs uh, after the Red Sox won in 2013 that kind of changed my whole perspective about clo- uh, relief pitchers, showing how that year was Uhara and I think Okajima for the Red Sox. They basically pitched the percentage of innings they pitched that postseason was like twice as much of the Red Sox total innings than they pitched during the regular season. Just shows with the days off. The amount you can lean on your best relievers just changes the equation for how you can use them. So using a guy for two-plus innings isn't so crazy anymore. 
No, not at all. And I think things really have changed. Uh, but looking back at the game last night, there's like a lot of different moments we could talk about. The one that stands out to me is Jason Wirth attempting to come home. It was uh, the seventh inning there, up one. He's on first with two outs. And Ryan Zimmerman doubles to left field. Uh, Jason Worth got thrown out it's by a sixth, oh, sixth inning. Excuse yeah. me, I, you know everything happens in the seventh yeah. inning. Yeah. Sixth inning, uh, but if you think about it, what happened on that play, Jason Worth? We can tell you how many feet he got thrown out by, but it really felt like miles. I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen that big of a gap in a big spot in a playoff game for where Jason Worth was. And we can tell you exactly where he was. When Corey Seager got the ball, so the ball was hit to left field. Andrew Tolles, who we'll talk about more in a second, made a nice play to get it. Gets it into the cutoff man, Corey Seager, the shortstop. At the time, Corey Seager let go of the ball. Worth was 25 feet past third base, so he was still 65 feet from home. That's really far, and uh, the throw beat him by a year, basically, right? <laughs> well, the thing we discovered is basically Seeger, uh, according to StatCast, was 135 feet from home plate when he let go of it. That's basically the distance a shortstop is standing when they throw someone to first, throw to first base on like a routine grounder, not deep in the hole, but like slightly into the hole. So basically it was like your garden variety 6-3 put out, and it looked... It basically looked at routine. And imagine a hitter being 25 feet out of the box exactly. at that time. That's what you, Basically, you have to fall down to make that happen. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think Worth is obviously getting uh, hit a little bit for this. I think the third base coach obviously takes some of the blame. But there's a couple interesting things when we looked at the StatCast data about why that play uh, beyond the decision-making looked so, you know, egregious. And I think part of it is how quickly Andrew Tolles got to the ball, and part of it uh, was a little bit about Worth's lead distance. So where do you want to start? Which one interests you the we'll most? We'll start with the begins because, you know... The previous inning had ended with Bryce Harper getting picked off. And Julio Arias, in his young career, has already, like, has a reputation, best pickoff move in the game. Um, and it clearly affected Worth. Worth, on average this season, had a secondary lead of 15.2 feet. On that play, he had a primary lead of 11.1 feet and a secondary lead of... 11.1 feet. And the difference there is uh, the primary lead is where he is when the pitcher makes his movement, and the secondary lead, as we've defined it, is where he is when the pitcher releases the ball. So Jason Worth moved zero inches in that time, apparently because he was so afraid that Julio Urias wasn't actually going to go to the plate. Obviously, a lot of controversy about whether that was a balk play in the previous inning. Uh, but it's interesting. It did help keep him on. I don't know that the four feet would have changed the outcome of the play, but it certainly has an impact. Maybe he doesn't run. You know, maybe he, it's, it's not just the four feet, though, because it's also like... If you have a secondary lead, your momentum is taking you forward. So he's basically flat-footed. Sure. Whereas usually in a perfect situation, you are sort of hopping towards second base, and your momentum is taking you there. Instead, he's completely flat-footed when the ball leaves Urias' hand. I love the idea that an Urias pickoff in the previous inning may have impacted Jason Worth rounding third and getting thrown out at home. Now, obviously, I think a big part of that is Corey Seager can't make that throw if Corey Seager doesn't get the ball. And the left fielder, Andrew Tolles, for the Dodgers... Uh, made a really, really nice play to get out in the corner and cut it off. It wasn't bouncing around out there, giving everybody all times a day. He cut it off, and he got that ball back in really, really quickly. He ran, uh, we, we tracked this, 100 feet from where he started to where he picked it up in 4.9 seconds, right? So what does that mean if you had a fly ball, for example, that was in the air for 4.9 seconds, and you had to run 100 feet for it? That's a, a catch percentage. It gets caught about 46% of the time. Let's say it's a 50-50 play. It's not easy. You know, it's not obviously... And, a, that's, a, and that's a catch. That's, and a, that's a ball a in the air. Like you're used to sort of tracking a ball like that. This is a ball he had to sprint to and backhand on the ground. Right. And he was able to do that, get that ball in. Uh, perfect throw to Seager. Perfect throw from Seager. Obviously, Seager could have probably walked it in and still be Jason Worth because of how far he was off. Uh, but I think that was really one of the major turning points of that game. That would have put them up by two runs. And one thing I would also... I think this also should put to rest the debate of the 2014 World Series Game 7 when it was like, oh, should they have sent Alex Gordon yes. home? Yes. <laughs> 
uh, AJ Casavell on the PC Road for MLB.com went back and looked at that play, and it was very similar in terms of. In fact, though, uh, Alex Gordon hadn't even reached third base when uh, Brandon Crawford caught the ball. Yes. So the outcome, assuming Brandon Crawford had the same poise as Corey Seager, which I think is a reasonable expectation. Uh, Gordon would have been out by about 30 feet. It was the right call, but it's interesting. There's another parallel in those two situations, which is that Danny Espinoza was the next hitter coming up, and he's not done much at all. Uh, I'm pretty sure in the 2014 World Series, Sal Perez was the next coming up, and he's a decent hitter, but at the time, he was just striking out on everything, and obviously Madison Bumgarner, when he came up, because obviously they didn't send him. It was just the most predictable thing in the world that he was going to get him to strike out on a ball outside the strike zone. That's exactly what happened. I think South President struck out, like, uh, had played about, had caught about 190 games I, that year. Yeah, so. I, I wrote about that at Fangraphs, and I just put up the, uh, the, like, the game day pitch charts to show, like, where did he swing at this ball? And it was basically, you know, the ball was in Cincinnati, and he was swinging at it. But so yeah, anyway. So, I mean, the third base coach was trying to be aggressive. I have to imagine was thinking about Espinosa being on deck. But there was clearly... Clearly enough time from when Tolles picked it up to, to, to throw up a stop sign. And I think that's sort of where, where he went wrong. And Seeger calmly caught it, tossed, tossed it. Really? He really <laughs> did. A turning point of the game, I think. So uh, the Dodgers wipe out the Nationals. And Dodgers National, excuse me, Dodgers Cubs is going to be a really fascinating NLCS, I think. Uh, if you look at MLB.com later today or tomorrow, you'll see I will do positional breakdowns, you know, giving the edge to each team. Uh, we've got our, our list here, and I think most of them are, are pretty understandable. You know, Rizzo's better than Gonzalez, no doubt about that. Bryant over Turner. Turner's very good. Um, the one thing I thought was interesting as I was writing this is I'm I'm putting it as a, a tie, as a push, a closer for Jansen and Araldis Chapman, even though Araldis Chapman is capital letters Araldis Chapman, flamethrower. Kenley Jansen, I don't think he's underrated anymore, but it feels like he probably was before yesterday. Um, I still sort of feel like he's, <laughs> in a weird way, he's been as dominant as basically any closer for about maybe, what, three years long? He throws one pitch. Um, he throws that cutter. That, I mean, the one he threw to Worth with men on first and third last night, the late break on it at like 96. He's it's got just, no chance. He's got no chance. Um, so I think, I think, I think that's reasonable. Um, I, you know, I think I might take Jansen over Chapman, if I'm being honest. I love that they're both free agents this winter. I, you know, not that any team doesn't already know who these guys are, so it's not like you have to watch them do well in this series, but that's a heck of a platform, right? Going into free agency, these two guys, and it, it's going to be interesting because, uh, you know, Jansen obviously has the name. He won't have a qualifying offer on him, which Jansen will, obviously. Chapman's got his other baggage that's going to be an issue for some teams, but it's really, it's fun to watch these two guys knowing that it's very possible neither one of them are still on these teams in a couple weeks. For sure. The, 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 one, the one matchup in this series I'm sort of most interested in is particularly game one with John Lester pitching. The Dodgers have a well-documented problem with left-handed pitching. Um, most of their best hitters are just left-handed hitters. Um, and Turner is a righty hitter who hasn't been hitting lefty pitchers, which is a, a weird kind of I'm sport. interested to see if they actually start uh, Carlos Ruiz a catcher in that game. Um, you know, small sample size is all you want. He's actually had two of his five hardest-hit balls of the year in the last three days, that home run in game uh, four, and then the, this, the RBI sing, the go-ahead single he had last night uh, in game five. So I, I kind of think... When you consider how lefty-heavy their lineup leans, the fact that Grandal has not been swinging the bat well, um, I, I'm interested to see if Ruiz gets the nod in, in Game 1. There's a strong case for it. Uh, he's a, he is a below-average framer, and Grandal is an excellent framer, so that obviously hurts the pitcher in Kentameda. So it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they actually go that route or not. But you're right, you can absolutely make that case for it. So I think that's interesting. Uh, that's going to be a fun series that kicks off on Saturday night, I believe. I'm also really interested in Cleveland and Toronto. I think it's going to get overshadowed a little bit, 
but it's a it's a good baseball series. This kind of reminds me of uh, 2004 when there was the Yankees Red Sox ALCS going on, and the NLCS was this insane Astros Cardinal series that went seven. Like it was like the Carlos Beltran year where he hit like 600 with like 12 homers. Was that was that the I can't remember if it was that year or the next year where uh, where Albert Pujols just like ended Brad Lidge's. No, that was 2005 because <laughs> the, the Astros actually won that series in 04. The Cardinals won. They hit a walk. Jim Edmonds hit a walk off in Game Six. Uh, sort of yes, icon- iconic fist That's right. uh, celebration. And then the Cardinals won again in Game Seven. It was like it was a a crazy series that was kind of overshadowed um, by the one going on in the other league. If I could take this parallel one step further, there was the other controversy in that series was the Astros wanted to have the roof open. No, I can't remember if they wanted to close or open, but there was a controversy of whether or not they would have the roof open or closed. With the Blue Jays in October, that's always a discussion because obviously when the river's open, they prefer it open, but when it gets cold, if the game time temperature is below a certain temperature, it's mandated that it has to be cold, has to be closed. So that's, a, you know, a little f- far afield. With a little this bit, analogy, a little bit, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, ALCS, you've written a lot of stuff uh, on that series the last couple of days. Why don't you uh, take us through it? Well, I think it's uh, there's a lot of really interesting parallels here. Everybody likes to focus on the rotations and the bullpens, right? And so you get it because Cleveland's rotation is obviously not at full strength, and Toronto's rotation has been pretty good. And uh, Cleveland's bullpen is elite and probably better than Toronto's bullpen, even though the Jays' bullpen is pretty good. But there are a couple of things we liked to focus on. Uh, the first one was, was Kevin Pillar, who is an elite defensive center fielder. Uh, it's not exactly breaking new ground. I think everybody knows that. He's uh, third over the last two years in center fielders and defensive runs saved, so that's pretty good. But, uh, you know, we've got all our StatCast data, and we spent some time this week really looking into what it is that makes him great. Uh, and you should look up the, the article. It's on BlueJays.com. But it's really interesting because you can look at catch percentages of balls. I mean, what is defense, really? It's how far did you have to go to catch a ball, and how much time did you have to do it? That's the entirety of it. And that takes positioning out of it, which is great because we know shifts are really messing with all the other uh, traditional stats. So we looked at all this stuff, and uh, we looked at center fielders who had the most catches on balls that are generally below a 30% catch rate. You could also look at that as balls that have a 700 average. That's a pretty high average. So uh, Kevin Pillar tied with Billy Hamilton and Jackie Bradley for second. He had six of those catches uh, behind only Ender Inciarte, who probably deserves an entire show just dedicated to Ender Inciarte because I love him. Uh, but Kevin Pillar is really elite. He's a human highlight film, you know? And uh, it's interesting. If you look at this stuff, uh, I'll give you an example here. Uh, in April, he caught a liner from Brandon Geyer. He had to go, he had three, four, 3.4 seconds of hang time to catch the ball. He only had to move 16 feet to catch it. Big deal. Uh, in uh, August, he had to go 47 feet in 3.4 seconds to rub Jose Altuve. It's like three times the distance in the same hang time. That play was an elite superstar play. So I think that that's really cool. And uh, that's a big advantage because Cleveland center fielders, Naquin, Rajay Davis, they have their skills. Neither one is a great center fielder. Yeah, I, I, this, is, this, is, this comes out of some of the work that Tom Tango has been doing. And it really, it's taking the StatCast defensive data that we're pulling in. It's really, this, this, just, this kind of combo hang time, distance covered, it really simplifies it, and it just makes, when you look at, you know, the, these, these scatter charts that we, that, 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 uh, that we put together in, in, the, in the story, you sort of compared Pilar to Adam Jones, um, it just, it becomes so clear, because you can see basically, you know, a huge par- portion of all catches are just... Are, are easy. Easy. I anyone, could make some of those catches. So it's really just, as you, you, you kind of spread out distance and hang time, and you sort of see where those, those like... Yeah, and it's a sliding scale, right? Like, the the higher the hang time, the farther you need to run to make it impressive or not, right? Because it's a lot easier to to run far for a ball that's in the air for 12 seconds than for a ball that's in the air for two seconds. I mean, that's the entirety of it. Uh, And then it really doesn't matter so much 
where if you're shifted over or not, it's just how far did you have to go. So I think that that's, that's interesting. What we also unintentionally did, as I sort of joked yesterday, is we've created the world's best blooper finding machine. Because <laughs> you can find these plays where it's like, well, wait a minute, this was a 99.9% chance of an out, and it became a hit. What happened? And then you fire up the play, and oh, there's some guy's tripping over his own shoelaces or running to, the, running to his teammate. So um, that's not exactly hardcore baseball analysis, but baseball should be fun sometimes. And I really enjoyed looking at those last night. <laughs> now, there was another thing you discovered... Uh, about the Blue Jays outfield. Um, yeah. That's less uh, They can't promise, throw. Less promising about them. <laughs> and it has it pertained, this is sort of a good sort of hidden matchup to watch in this series. Yeah, so, you know, there's some, there's some big matchups, right? Like the Cleveland pitching against the Blue Jays lineup and all this stuff. You don't really think about base running being that big a deal, but in a short series, it really can be. We saw Josh Donaldson kind of, you know, walk off that Texas series by being aggressive on the bases. And uh, if you look at what Cleveland can do, they're really, really good on the bases. They stole the most bases in the American League. They had 134. Uh, now, raw totals are nice, but success rate is better. They actually had the second best success percentage in baseball. Uh, they were successful on 81.2 of their stolen base attempts. That's second best to Arizona. That's really good. Roger Davis stole 43 bags. That's the fourth best in baseball. They're really good at stealing bases. Conversely, Toronto only caught 20 base runners stealing all season long. That's uh, tied for the fewest in baseball. 19% caught stealing rate. Major league average is 28. That's not very good. Russell Martin threw out 11 of 72 base runners against. Now, we're learning a lot about this. It's probably partially the pitchers, no doubt. But this is not really a, a strength for the Blue Jays, and it is a strength for Cleveland. So I know you asked about the outfielders, and I kind of diverged to stolen bases there. You can look at more than just stolen bases when you're looking at base running skill. Uh, for example, Fangraphs has a stat called base running runs, which accounts for you know going first to third and second home and all this kind of stuff. Cleveland came in third with 17 runs added, uh, and Raja Davis and Jose Ramirez both in the top five. Now, if you look at Toronto's outfield arms, uh, 23rd in old school assists, 23rd also in Fangraph's uh, advanced arm metric, neither of which is that impressive, and also we can look at uh, we can look at arm strength. 18th with an average of 88.7 miles an hour. Uh, for comparison, Minnesota is at the top 93.4 miles an hour. Oakland, the weakest, 83.6 miles an hour. If you look at the Blue Jays' arms, you know, Melvin Upton's pretty good, almost 92 miles an hour. Uh, Saunders and Pilar, about 90 miles an hour. That's fine. Ezekiel Carrera, 86 Jose Bautista, what happened to Jose Bautista? He used to have a good arm. 84 miles an hour is pretty weak. And these are competitive throws, right? These so are competitive like throws. Their 90th, the average of everything above the 90th percentile, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we want to weed out the lobs and the stuff that don't really matter. Jose Bautista, I remember him using, used to have a big, big arm. Now, he's older. He hurt his shoulder last year. Uh, it is, it's stunning to see that number. And he's a right fielder. Yeah, and I mean, this is, it's, it's going to be really interesting because, you know, you, have, you mentioned Davis, Lindor's a speedy guy, Ramirez. There's a lot of guys in this, on the team who can take extra bases, can challenge the arms, can steal bases. Um, you know, Cleveland hit a bunch of homers in the DS against um, Boston, but I don't, with the current lineup they have, I don't really think that's necessarily a sustainable, you know, uh, strategy other than, you know, they've got Napoli. But beyond that, there's not, like... This is not the typical sort of offense we see in baseball these days. No, and it, overall, I think it's a pretty evenly matched series. I don't consider either team to have a strong edge. I think in our predictions, I picked uh, Cleveland in seven, I think I did, which, you know, it's, I don't see either team really running over the other. So something like this that seems small can actually like pay dip big dividends you know another example uh we can measure lead distance with stack as we just talked about it with jason worth cleveland's really really good at that you know if, if you look at uh, uh stolen base attempts at second base the major league average uh, just over 11 feet cleveland has three players in the top 15 lindor is fifth he gets uh, almost 12 and a half feet you know kipnis is up there davis ramirez they take aggressive leads they're fast they're smart base runners 
and Toronto behind the plate and in the outfield doesn't seem equipped to stop them. Yeah, and it, it, I kind of feel like it's going to be one of those things that if they have a little success in game one or game two, it's just going to become a huge snowball effect. You know, I remember, you know, in the early 2000s, the Angels, they had a couple playoff series against the Yankees, and this was when the, when the Angels built their reputation as being this, like, the Mike Socha, like, oh, we take extra bases sort of thing. And they basically realized that Bernie Williams couldn't throw anymore, and they just, every single centerman, they were basically taking extra bases at will. And it became this huge storyline where... Other teams playing the Yankees basically realized, oh yeah, like this guy can't throw anymore. Like we can run. We should this do guy. something about that. And I could see in this series, based on you know the information we have, and you know, the Indians have this information. I'm sure that they do. <laughs> if they didn't, they probably read your story. <laughs> um, that they're aware of this, and this, I'm I'm really interested to see how it manifests itself on the field. Yeah, I think the other uh, really interesting thing about this matchup is obviously Andrew Miller and Terry Francona's willingness to use him at all times. Here's my question, because some of the other managers in the playoffs have kind of gotten uh, criticized for not, you know, following his lead. How much of it is that uh, Terry Francona is like a visionary? How much of it is that Terry Francona also has Cody Allen in reserve? And how much of it is that Andrew Willer or Andrew Miller is just willing to do this stuff? Like his attitude is a big part of this, I think. Completely agree. It's it's sort of interesting to see. I mean, I guess at this point, maybe he's like, I got my big contract. Like, what you know, it's sort of like I'm gonna do what I think is best for the team. He seems totally kind of nonchalant about the whole thing, um, and it's just made him this really fascinating player. And it adds, as I think I said to you yesterday um, in the office, like just the way he's being used just adds this extra layer of intrigue. It's like, oh, when is when is Francona going to deploy him. You know, it just makes the game so much more interesting because the whole game you're watching, it's like, okay, you're looking at the lineups. Who's going to be do up next? Even um, from, like, the third inning, right? Like, maybe not the first or second inning, but you're not waiting till the sixth, seventh, eighth inning here. He could come in, I think, at any point after the third inning. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the difference with Toronto versus Boston is with Boston, there was... Ortiz was always looming, right? And it was very clear. There was always sort of a clear moment in almost every game where, okay, here's where you want to get Andrew Miller in, which was basically, you know, in games when Kluber wasn't pitching, it was basically... Third time through the order when Ortiz comes up, essentially. Uh, particularly if there's a man on base, definitely. Blue Jays, obviously, a much more right-hand... They're, they're good hitters, all right-hand hitters. So it's not quite as obvious. However, I looked this up just before the show. Andrew Miller has a, sort of a weird split in the sense that right-hand hitters have a much higher average exit velocity against him, three miles per hour higher. But in terms of weighted on base percentage, lefties actually hit him... A little better this year. So the righties hit it harder, but get less out of it. So far. What does that mean? I'm not sure. I think we're probably, probably <laughs> to go with launch yeah. angle. We're to go look at yeah. launch angle. It's not it's more than just exit velocity. He's tough on lefties and righties, but but you know it's obviously going to be more obvious to bring him in when there's a big left-handed bat sitting there. So it's like with the Blue Jays, it's like, well, do I bring him in for Encarnacion or Batista or you know Martin with two men on yeah, you Tulo? Know, okay. it's, it's just it's just less obvious. Right. No, I think that that's a good point, and it's so. It's uh, it's not that he's not as valuable, I guess, because he can get everybody out. But I think you're right that in a lineup that doesn't rely on lefty hitters, you wonder if his value is just down like a slight amount. It's gonna, it, it's going to put a lot more of the onus on Francona himself to really sort of be aggressive with him because there's no obvious situation where it's like, okay, this is where I know I'm going to want to use. Miller. Right. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this now because the series kicks off in about five hours or so from when we're talking. But if, if I, I, the one player maybe it should uh, account for probably is Edwin Encarnacion. 
the one player left in the playoffs who has three barrels in the postseason. Is right. that true? Yes. I'm glad you looked that up because I did not know that. Uh, but that's true. And uh, Edward Encarnacion, probably one of my favorite and most underrated players. Uh, and like the two closest we talked about, a fascinating free agent this winter. So it'll be fun to see what he does here. Uh, that's our show. Uh, Mike, he's Matt. Thanks so much for listening. We will catch you next week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Enjoy the LCS and NLCS. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.